You're back. I'm back. Which means the far middle is back in the saddle for number 113 in this epic and fine lineage of rational talk. Thanks for joining in. We first air on the 19th of July, and that marks a key milestone for who many consider to be the most legendary of pitchers in baseball, and with respect to a record that, in your host's humble opinion, is the most unbreakable in all of professional sports. Because on July 19th, in 1910, Cy Young wins his 500th career game. He ends his career at the start of the next season with 511 wins amassed. Now, I view that 511 career wins of Cy as the most unbreakable of all sports records. We talked back in episode 95 of how tough it would be for a Major League Baseball player to match Cal Ripken's consecutive game streak. And there's Wilt Chamberlain's 50-plus points per game career average. That's another great one. And there are others across sports. But this one, you know, Cy Young's 511 wins, it is at the top of my list of records never to be broken. So let me give you some perspective of 511 wins in today's game. A 21-year-old generational talent, let's say that person shows up at the start of next season, for him to break Cy Young's record, he would have to post 20 win seasons for 26 years. Young's durability uh, was, of course, a major contributor to the 511 win accomplishment. Uh, He pitched until his mid-40s, never really suffered a major injury, And experts attribute that to his ability to throw from different arm positions. He could basically change up his uh, his throwing motion, which didn't stress uh, key parts of his uh, of his arm. And he led the league in wins for five seasons, which that's impressive by itself. But then when you think about 511 wins, that looks lower than what I would have expected uh, with all those career wins. So I guess it does speak indeed to his longevity and his consistency. And he notched 30 or more season wins five times. Wow. Cy Young also holds another record that might not be, probably won't be broken, and that is career innings pitched at over 7,000. Heck, in his 500th win game, he ended up pitching into extra innings. So how is that going to be eclipsed, those innings pitched with modern-day practices like pitch count management and middle relievers? With the, uh, the complete game looking like an endangered species in the modern game of baseball, it's hard to see how someone throws more than 7,000 innings. The modern era player that came closest, by the way, was Phil Necro, who was our dedication for episode 35 way back. But Necro is almost 2,000 innings shy of Young's 7,000 plus innings. Now, Cy Young was a little competitive, as you might imagine. After one hitting Boston, another pitcher, this one on the A's, Rube Waddell, who, by the way, is also in the Hall of Fame, Waddell publicly dared Young to face him. Three days later, Waddell got his wish and Cy Young pitched a perfect game against Waddell and the A's. It was the first perfect game in American League history, by the way. Waddell was the 27th and last batter in that game, and when he flied out, thus you know, sort of locking in the perfect game, Young, uh, Cy Young yelled over to him, how do you like that, you hayseed? So Young, by the way, was born in a region that I'm broadcasting from, which was a small town in Tuscarawas County, eastern Ohio, um, this wider region, it's just got such a rich sports legacy. Strangely, Cy Young, I don't know if you realize this or not, I was surprised to learn this, he was not voted into the Hall of Fame in his first year of eligibility. He had to wait until the second year in 1937. Now, why in the world wasn't Cy Young voted in until the second ballot? What were those voters thinking? Well, there is a technicality 
or special consideration here. 1936 was the first class for the Hall of Fame, and that had Ty Cobb, Honest Wagner, Walter Johnson, Christy Mathewson, and oh yeah, a guy by the name of Babe Ruth. But Young did get in, as I said, the next year. And here's another funny story about Cy Young, uh, the type of insight that only you constant listeners get to enjoy on the far middle. Cy Young, he ends up being older, and later in his life, he goes to watch a baseball game. And a young kid at the game figures out that Cy was a major league pitcher, and he asks the legend if he was any good. What was Cy Young's reply? Son, I've won more games than you'll ever see played. That's classic. Yeah, they don't call it the Cy Young Award for nothing. Episode 113 goes to Cy Young, his unbreakable record of 511 career wins, including win number 500 that he notched this day in 1910. Let's start making those interesting connections. Connections, you ask, if you are new to the podcast? That's right, connections in honor of the Dr. James Burke and his science and history docuseries from BBC in the 1970s, which was named Connections. This episode, we will focus some time here on a speech that I gave last month in Los Angeles to the Lincoln Club, which is a really cool historic association of business and thought leaders in the greater Los Angeles area. The president of the Lincoln Club listened to an episode or two of the far middle, and then he saw my book, Precipice, The Left's Campaign to Destroy America, and he offered an invitation for me to come speak. By the way, you can read my speech in full on nickdeolius.com, or there's also links there on LinkedIn and Twitter, both at or under the Nick Deolius um, sort of name or hashtag. Now, I jumped at this opportunity with the Lincoln Club because to me, California and Los Angeles, not long ago, they were viewed as sort of the exemplars of the American dream, much like Cy Young was the ultimate exemplar of pitching excellence. And people from California, they don't often understand that, how the state and cities like L.A. were once perceived by the rest of America. Most Americans are from families, depending on how far you go back, that were not originally from America. So our people came to America. And more specifically, our people aspired to come to America because of what it represented and offered, which oftentimes was in stark contrast to the places where our people left. And within this great nation sits California. People from all over America they dreamt of going to California. California for decades, it was the dream, I'll call it within the dream, and the next level of the American ideal. And as a kid and a young adult, I shared that dream, but I was never able to realize it. And that's okay. I love Western Pennsylvania. I love Appalachia. And although I never left Pittsburgh, I remain fond of California and LA. And I'm deeply troubled about both. And I'm troubled about America and my hometown as well. So I wanted to explain why to these leaders at the Lincoln Club out in Los Angeles. I started with talking about the mosaic of things that constitute my makeup. And I wanted to highlight them on this episode because they represent in many ways a charter of the themes of the far middle. I discussed how I'm an engineer by training, which means I'm going to be passionate about the scientific method and objectivity when setting policies. And that also means I'm not going to be a fan of and I'm going to be deeply troubled by the science. We've talked about that many times on this podcast. I talked about being a liberal, but is in the endangered species of the classic liberal when it comes to individual rights, how the Constitution and our republic were structured to protect the rights of the individual. Protect them from what? From the tyranny of the majority and certainly from the state itself. The individual should be free to choose. 
And I made no bones in the speech about being most definitely a fiscal conservative. I never spent more cash than I took in, including when I was young, starting out with basically nothing. So why should our government constantly and grossly outspend what it takes in if none of us are able to do that? And philosophically, I guess I'm best defined as a libertarian. That's a theme that's pervasive throughout far middle episodes. Yeah, I recognize we need some level of government to protect property rights and to protect individual rights and to defend, say, from outside threats. But, you know, that level should be minimal so that the individual is optimal. And I pointed out that I'm a proud capitalist and an unapologetic domestic energy producer of natural gas and a believer in meritocracy and, of course, a free market advocate. We then got into a discussion about what I think would serve as a next great connection on this episode of The Far Middle. That's how out of style that mosaic makeup that I just walked through has become. In fact, it's now beyond unpopular with the elite and expert classes. It's outright vilified as something in need of silencing and eradicating. Just think about it, constant listeners. We've talked about these themes many times on prior episodes. You've got the science, which is now reigning over science. You've got individual rights that are being trampled by the official views set by the elite and expert classes. Um, Fiscal responsibility in government, boy, that's been obliterated, and we pretend that the bill will never come due. Governments become a monster, light years away from minimal. Socialism, it eats away at capitalism every day. And zero carbon myths, they're used to attack domestic energy. And of course, that thing called equal outcomes is working to destroy meritocracy. Now, why are all these things coming to bear at the same time across our great land in places like California? It boils down to one culprit. It's the left. Heck, why do we convene each week, constant listeners, with the far middle and discuss these topics, if nothing else, to rebut the left? Yep, if you could create the opposite composite of the things that I love, that I associate with, um, that I just walked you through, you'd come up with today's left. And in that speech out in Los Angeles, I went on to discuss how not only is the left the antithesis of all that I hold near and dear, it also, quite astutely, I might add, when you consider the left's endgame, It also attacks and vilifies the industry in the region that are in my DNA, those being the domestic natural gas industry in Appalachia, with Pittsburgh serving as its beating heart. And speaking of domestic energy in places like Appalachia, it sort of connects to another topic that we discussed out there, which is what catalyzed and what allowed this stunning rapid transformation and dominant position in energy that the United States enjoys. Well, it was a handful of things, three to be exact. The first thing was that the free market brought innovative and disruptive technology in the form of things like horizontal drilling and advanced completion techniques to the natural gas industry. So American ingenuity, it allowed methane, aka natural gas, to be liberated from shale rock deposits at really prolific rates and at very low cost. Second driver was that the free market and capitalism those things, they glue together at first what were separate parts of a virtuous energy value chain, which, by the way, had the potential to total in trillions of dollars. And then the free market, it allocated capital across those different links of the value chain, made them stronger, integrated them into what were once fragmented pieces into something much more efficient. And today, again, the value of that chain, it totals in the trillions and it's measured in the trillions of dollars. And then the third driver 
the free market, this was a big one. It's got a lot of laughs, I'll tell you, uh, out west because people knew exactly what I was talking about. The free market was able to function without major government intervention early on because the industry innovated faster than the bureaucrat and the left could keep up to meddle. But, you know, the doers in domestic energy and Appalachia in flyover country, unfortunately, they're not being left alone by the left. And that brings us to the next up connection, which I also discussed in the speech, where I laid out a three-pronged attack, sort of defined the three prongs of this attack that the left applies against domestic energy. And it's almost, I sort of was thinking out loud uh, during the event, it's almost as if the success of the domestic energy, it's driven the left mad to the point where their zealotry to destroy and appropriate the value of the doers, it's exponentially increased under, of course, the halo umbrella of Code Red. Now, the first prong of the attack is a heightened regulatory set of standards on domestic energy production and reduced access to natural gas or oil reserves. And you see this attack every time an administrative state bureaucrat issues a new regulation on the industry. It's probably the oldest and most common prong of the three. Now, the second prong of the attack, somewhat newer. This one targets the industry's access to capital, and it looks to cut off the supply of the vital lubricant for any capitalistic endeavor. So this attack will be evident when a major bank bows to pressure from environmental groups to stop lending to the carbon economy. Um, when a foundation or an endowment of a university, they start their bragging or chest thumping about their divestment from carbon producing companies. Or maybe when a credit ratings firm assigns a poor credit rating to a company in domestic energy, not because of, say, a quantitative metric that you can measure, but instead because of subjective views of, say, the industry's social worthiness. So the logic of this prong of the three-pronged attack, it's pretty simple. Starve a growing industry of capital, and then you can slowly strangle it to death. Now, the third and the final prong of the attack, I think it's the most insidious of all. That is thwarting the future demand growth for natural gas. Now, this attack will manifest through the throwing of regulatory and legal roadblocks into the paths of new pipeline projects that would end up conveying natural gas from the producing basins to the growing demand centers. It's sort of that key link in that development chain, that virtuous chain that I spoke about earlier. And this also, by the way, includes direct and backdoor regulatory attacks that we've seen quite a bit of recently in the news on gas stoves and lawnmowers and internal combustion engine cars, of course, with EVs. That's a huge one. In the left, they justify the three-pronged attack with a few convenient energy myths. Let's connect to these myths. First one, wind and solar and electric vehicles are zero carbon. Nonsense. They've got massive carbon and CO2 footprints on a life cycle basis, much higher than natural gas power generation for sure. And mandating things like uh, wind and solar power generation, um, EVs, and the adoption of EVs, that's going to increase atmospheric carbon dioxide net-net, not decrease it. Uh, the second myth is that we can manufacture wind and solar and EV batteries here in the United States at scale. We can't because the stuff you need sits largely in Africa, in South America, in China. And all the processing capacity to purify that stuff is absolutely controlled by China. So a mad dash to wind or solar EVs it necessarily creates energy dependency on the Chinese Communist Party as designed. And the murky supply chain of wind, solar, and batteries, by the way, it brings epic human rights abuses. 
It's in many ways a new form of brutal colonialism brought to you by the left and the Church of Climate and the Inflation Reduction Act. Now, I got asked this question at the Lincoln Club. Um, why aren't these myths about wind, solar, and batteries exposed as nonsensical under just basic laws of science that, uh, that a high school student should be able to, to be able to figure out? Well, you know, the myths masquerade under that veneer of an effective tactic. And it's a tactic that if done objectively, it can be of great use and great value. But when purposely misapplied by the left, which it often is, it does great harm. And it's one that we've discussed extensively on the far middle. It's ESG screening methodology, ESG standing for environmental, social, and governance, of course. Yeah, the left uses ESG as a blunt instrument to punish domestic energy and to cover over those inconvenient uh, sort of truths and sort of to perpetrate those myths of wind and solar and electric vehicles. And how do they do that? By basically distorting uh, the E, the environmental side of ESG. Now, I assured the audience that the symptoms and consequences of the left meddling in energy, they're real. You see sort of the sequential events everywhere these days. You got the meddling that creates energy scarcity, which then creates energy inflation, which then stokes general inflation. That helps create energy insecurity in the West and a dependency on places like Russia, because when wind and solar inevitably fail to perform at scale, the energy needs to come from somewhere. Putin, he ends up feeling emboldened. He decides he can take a nation or two because of his energy stranglehold over the EU that the left gave him. Climate change, constant listeners, we've discussed this many times, it's not the problem. Climate change been, has been happening for millions of years. It's climate change policies and the myths that they embody. Those are the problems. Now, I did get around to discussing the themes of my book, Precipice, out at the Lincoln Club. And many of you constant listeners know them well by now. But what I would like to do here on this episode is to connect with a compare-contrast exercise that I provided uh, for the audience on the themes of Precipice and the roadmap of the left and the leech way and how they appropriate the value of others. And I wanted to tie those back to California and Los Angeles. So what that epic state and that great city once represented as the ideal for Americans and what they've unfortunately become, which is now or today bastions of the left. And it's uncanny how you can take the themes of precipice and align them with what is going out there in California and L.A. today. So high level for those of you not familiar with precipice, um, and if you're not, I welcome you to give it a read, is that society and our economy and our culture, they've historically broken down into two broad groups. In one category, you've got creators, enablers, and servers of value creation. So creators, you know, they create wealth uh, and from a range of uh, different types of careers and, uh, and pursuits from inventors, surgeons, it could be construction workers, uh, people working in manufacturing and, and blue collar trades. They are basically the embodiment of competent man or competent woman. Then enablers, they make the job of the creator easier or possible or more efficient. So they think of like the nurse to the surgeon, the accountant to the innovative uh, business person, uh, the long haul truck driver to get a manufacturing product to its destination. So without enablers, you know, creators can't do their thing or they're, they're throttled back. And then there's the servers. They take the invention or the service of the creator, and then they use it to make life more enjoyable. That server class is large. It includes obvious examples of professions. Um, you got a waiter, a ride-hailing driver. Um, they also include pro athletes and musicians. Again, sometimes we look to define those professions into something they're not almost godlike. They're classic servers. 
And servers don't make life possible like creators and enablers do, but servers definitely make life better. So those three creators, enablers, and servers, they constitute that first category. In some professions, you know, you can be subjectively defined as part of maybe even two or all three of those subcategories. But what they all have in common is that if you let a creator and an enabler and a server do their thing in a free market economy with minimal government intervention, you've got the success that was America and that was California and that was that great city of Los Angeles that basically blossomed out of an arid basin out of nothing. But then there is the second category that's out there today, and it's one that doesn't create value or optimize it. Instead, this category exists to appropriate the value and consume it of others. And I refer to it as the leech. It is perhaps more of an organism because it exhibits a set of common characteristics that I define as the leech way, and it serves in many ways as a leftist roadmap. And it uses the ground game of the ways and tactics that it applies to commandeer professions and regions and institutions, converting them from once manufacturers of value into present-day exporters of need. And there's a lot of professions that were once noble ones that are subsumed today by the left and the leech. Which ones? Well, this is where we can start to do our compare and contrast um, to the themes of precipice and what's going on out west in California. So certainly much of government, the bureaucratic state, it's a monster. Um, of course, I tag it as the deep state in precipice, not deep as in secret. I wish it were secret. No, deep as in rooted and entrenched everywhere and with everything. And of course, there's a, a long historical lineage, lineage of how this, uh, this came to be from Woodrow Wilson to FDR to LBJ, President Obama to, to what we have today. And the individual can do nothing in today's America without government approval. And California, in many ways, is ground zero of the deep state movement. Public unions are another domain of the left. Uh, teachers unions, which punish great teachers and students and parents and taxpayers. Why? So that the union can grow its power and influence. I mentioned L.A. County Unified School District competency scores in math and science and reading. Yet when you compare those plummeting scores that are frankly embarrassing and frightening, what have funding levels done over decades as those scores have declined? Funding's gone up. And what happened out there with education during pandemic? And who called the shots? You know, who benefits and who pays the price with those decisions? It tells you quite a bit as to how the system is aligned with regard to key stakeholders. The media um, that's another tragedy when a once noble profession that, again, the founders thought of as vital to our republic and needing constitutional protection, it's morphed into the propaganda agency of the left. And out there, of course, you've got Hollywood to the LA Times sort of serving as front and center exhibits of the crisis in journalism. The tech industry, we talked a little bit about that out in California, not just in California, but across the nation. In many ways, it should be ashamed. On one hand, yeah, it surely exhibits classic creator, enabler, and server traits. It created true, massive value creation for society. But then what? You know, then it looked to curry favor with the left and support the left's aims and ideology, and it made it stronger. And now the tech industry is sort of getting its just due in return as the left and the leech turns its attention to the industry. And then there's academia, right? It went from being the marketplace of ideas to an iron curtain of ideology, went from where a student once expanded horizons 
to one where the student comes out indoctrinated with narrower horizons. The California State University system was once the envy of the world, and today it's a massive burden fiscally and culturally for state taxpayers and for citizens. Yeah, when the left controls government, it's only a matter of time before the policies of government, it feeds the leech, it catalyzes the growth of the left. Look at Fed monetary policy. We've talked about that many times. You've got these massively negative real interest rates and constant running of money printing presses to fund a model of outspending, to punish savers, and to subsidize broken business models. That ends up manipulating capital markets and picking winners and losers. And the consequences in California, you see it from inflation to real estate bubbles. Um, You see those growing spate of bank failures whose balance sheets became addicted to perpetual free money uh, with respect to monetary policy, along with making loans to risky businesses whose entire business model was also premised on free money. So SVB or Silicon Valley Bank, that might only be the start. And those tactics, of course, of the left, they come to bear heaviest in major cities I didn't have to lecture anybody out there about what was going on in L.A. or San Francisco. They know exactly what uh, Dave Chappelle recently meant when he referenced San Francisco and he asked out loud what happened to this place. I saw a lot of that, by the way, in downtown Los Angeles. It's hard to believe that uh, that that's America. And it's I got to tell you, it's getting worse. And uh, we also briefly touched uh, a bit on Pope Francis, considering Los Angeles is one of the largest dioceses of the Catholic Church in America. I mentioned that I wasn't a fan of the current pontiff from my perspective of being both American as well as Catholic. Yeah, sadly, you know, California, Los Angeles, they both served as much of the inspiration for precipice. And by the way, the rest of America, it's gravitating toward where they are. The left and the leech, they never sleep. They're always growing by consuming the value of others day by day, profession by profession, and state by state. Now, after the speech... Um, there was a a vibrant and intense Q&A session. It was awesome. And I wish you constant listeners were there to participate. One question toward the very end was thrown out there, and it was a great one. And I thought my thoughts and the feedback and forth between myself and the audience, they can serve as a great final connection for this topic and uh, today's episode of The Far Middle. The question was, okay, everything you've laid out, it's overwhelming. It's hard to ignore. But where does this all end? Do we course correct? How do we course correct? Boy, that was like in many ways a perfect capstone of a question for that speech in Los Angeles at the Lincoln Club, um, for the end of a reading of Precipice, and for this, the Far Middle podcast. I want to be, you want to be optimistic and immediately jump to an answer of, heck yeah, we can course correct. Here's how, right? We all want that, that path. But a sober In clinical analysis of our national situation, it makes you worry and perhaps switch to the pessimistic view. Here's why. Our national debt sits north of 31 trillion and over 120% of GDP. Those levels are unsustainable. And worse yet, every year with debt ceiling deals or no debt ceiling deals, the Democrats or the Republicans in control of the White House or Congress, doesn't matter, this nation keeps posting massive federal budget deficits. That grows the debt pile to even more unsustainable levels. And then you got the policies of the left, things like climate policies, pandemic policies, the out-of-control government spending. With those things comes inflation, which means our central bank, the Fed, has to raise rates, which is going to increase the interest outlays on all that debt each year within the federal budget. 
that grows the deficit further, and that adds to the debt pile more, more unsustainable further. So there are three immediate or next outcomes to this quandary. There's sort of three paths. You tell me which one is the most likely from your perspective. Option one is to balance our budget deficit and maybe even develop a budget surplus to start paying down the $31 plus trillion debt pile. Now, that's going to require higher taxes across more Americans and substantial, and I want to emphasize the word substantial, spending cuts and entitlement reform. We talked about that a few episodes back, how Social Security and healthcare they're the two biggest budget outlays each year and growing without any reform. And this is the obviously the best option of the three I'm going to give you, but it requires adults making grown-up decisions in a responsible manner. Does that sound like the current president, the prior president, Congress? It's not happening, constant listeners, not anytime soon. Which leads to option number two. That is grossly devaluing the currency to fund the debt and buy time, kicking the can down the road. I think this is almost a certainty for two reasons. First, it's the easiest for the administrative state and political class to stomach. It's a classic punting and not dealing with the issue. Second, empires through history, they've selected this option first time and time again. Chinese dynasties have done it. The Roman Empire did it. Um, The Dutch and British empires have done it. And I'm guessing also the Weimar Republic in Germany pre-World War II also experienced this. And soon, I fear, the U.S. of A. Because devaluing the currency, it buys some time, but it inevitably leads to option number three, which is straight-up government default. It's ugly. It's end of empire. It's history-altering. We sit here in America smugly thinking this will never happen, that we're the reserve currency, The world has to follow us and will always be the safe harbor during calamitous times. Don't be so sure. Many empires felt the same arrogant way right before the you-know-what hit the fan and reminded them of a few undeniable realities. Yeah, there is still time to change the road we're on, to paraphrase Robert Plant in Stairway to Heaven. That's why we convene in the far middle each week. That's why we advocate, right? But we better move quick or else this is not going to be a stairway to heaven. Instead, it's going to be a highway to hell. Best of luck in your endeavors this week, friends, and we pick up in a week. Rock on.